This week, we're at Surly Brewery, one of the biggest breweries in Minneapolis, and definitely the biggest one on my tour of town. We're meeting with Ben Smith, the head brewer. And in the background, you can hear Tiffany and a little bit of the cycling Cicerone, Mia. I'm the cycling certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. Ben Smith, the head brewer here uh, at Surly MSP Plant. What's the MSP plant? That's uh, the building we're sitting in currently. It's our destination brewery. We've been open for about three and a half years. Surly is uh, about 12 years old itself. We have our original brewery in Brooklyn Center, still operational. And I kind of share head brewer duties with Jared Johnson. So he's primarily at the Brooklyn Center place. I'm primarily here. Um, But when it comes to recipe formulation and management, we're kind of both all over the place. I want to talk a little bit about like distribution and stuff. The yeah. way that you guys manage having two different, you know, brew halls. I want to talk a little bit more about your background and kind of how you got into all this. I guess let's start with that. Who are you, kind of really? Uh, good question. Who am I? <laughs> uh, I graduated from the U of M um, with a degree in cultural studies and comparative literature, so nothing brewery related. But I had my first two years in college as a chemistry major. Didn't really know what to do. Loved science, but didn't really want to work in a lab or go to med school. So. Ended up graduating, worked in marketing for many years. I played a lot of music, so I toured around the country pretty much all throughout my 20s um, doing that. And that was more of my focus was on the on music. Like I still had a full-time job, and I was working a lot in marketing. I worked for the Guthrie Theater in town um, and helped open that building downtown. And, you know, at some point, a woman I was dating bought me a homebrew kit, and I started homebrewing, and... When I get really into things, I get kind of OCD, so I was homebrewing a lot um, and devouring, you know, all the textbooks, all the brute um, online blogs and things like that I could find. And that was, you know, well before the Surly build. There wasn't really much around town. There was maybe three or four brew pubs and Summit and Shells, and that was about it. Um, and at one point, I just kind of wondered if I can get paid to do this. Um, at the time, there wasn't a lot of opportunities here. I remember talking to Mike Hoops at Town Hall, and he kind of brought up, well, you can go to school. He's like, I prefer to have experience, but there's not a lot of jobs around town. And he's like, whatever you do, don't work for free. Don't volunteer. Like, that's just a trap. Like, that's not fair. So don't do that. I was like, well, shit, what do I, what do, I do then? Um, so I ended up applying to UC Davis, got in there. It was a three-year um, wait list. In the meantime, ended up finding a job at some small brewery out in uh, Big Sky, Montana called Lone Peak. Uh, the most we brewed there when I was there was 2,000 barrels, but I worked there for about two and a half years. Uh, there was two of us that basically did everything. Um, you know, quit my job within a month and moved out there. How'd you find your, how, how, is, how different is this job, being a head brewer, one of many people, versus one of two people doing everything? Uh, completely different. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, I wouldn't be here today without that job, just the learning experience of, you know, starting out cleaning kegs and basically doing everything you need to do in a brewery from... Um, you know, dirty deeds of just like cleaning sanitation, which obviously is like 90% of the job, especially in a small brewery where there's only two of you, um, all the way up to, you know, random cellar work, yeast management, malt inventory, ordering stuff, brewing, um, all the marketing and PR stuff that goes along with that, working beer fest. I mean, the two of us would do all of that. So um, there's a lot of work, but a, you know, very, very quick learning curve on that too, because you didn't really have time to, um, sit back and let someone else, you know, tell you how to do something. You just kind of had to figure it out. Um, so I worked with the owner. Didn't really work this, but he had been in the industry for a long time. And then the, the head brewer and I got along really well. So um, basically, just worked constantly for two years. So got a lot of experience. And then from there, I went down to UC Davis. Went through their master brewers program, which kind of os- opposite end of the spectrum. Like before, I was doing you know all hands on experience. UC Davis is all practical. So you're in a classroom, uh, you know. 50 hours a week. So it was nice to have both those experiences and then um, going through UC Davis and getting all the microbiological chemistry stuff. Luckily I'd had the chemistry background in, in college briefly so I was kind of decently prepared for for the science aspect of it. A lot of physics, a lot of you know um, plumbing, water, I mean everything from electrical. They, they cover everything which is great. It's a great experience. Um, and while I was there, I was in touch with Todd Howe back here at Surly. Um, again, I'm from here, so I, I always wanted to move back to the Midwest. 
And while I'd been in Montana, this early bill had passed. I knew that Omar was thinking about building a destination brewery. So it was perfect timing. Got in touch with Todd. Uh, he offered me a job about a year before I moved back. So I knew I'd had a job so I could just focus on school and, and finish that up. Uh, so I came back here, worked at the original brewery in Brooklyn Center for about a year and a half as a shift brewer. Moved over here with Todd Haug, uh, Spencer Anderson as the lead brewer at the time, and the three of us basically put this thing together and figured out how it works. Um, I've been here ever since, so that was about three and a half years ago. Spencer left and eventually Todd left, so I just kind of moved up naturally. Um, most people who start breweries are like home brewers turned yeah. neat. This is a cool idea, let's do it, open a business, and I find that um, that they're, there's a lot more to do than they were, you know, they're not just brewing beer like they kind of wanted. Yeah, it's not as glamorous as you think either. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of honest to God, like janitorial and um, cleaning and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a that's like, plumbing. Yeah. You're, you're kind of a plumber and electrician half the time, but. Uh, yeah, I think you were not the first person to say, <laughs> like, uh, like basically brewing is just being a glorified janitor. Yeah, uh, you know, there's more to it than that, but that a lot of, you know, 90% of your time is, is that kind of work, especially as a shift brewer. Um, Did, do you level. think that um, your education, like your formal brewing education, prepared you for that in any way? Um, Obviously, it's hard to make a comparison between you and some mythical version of you that didn't go to school. But No, I, it helped me on probably for more of the larger spectrum stuff. I think having the experience of the small brewery in Montana at Lone Peak, just I wasn't naive. There's a lot of guys I went to school with that had no practical experience, and I think they're a lot more naive about what the business was about, what real like day in the life of a brewer meant, whether you're a small brewery or a large brewery. Um, so honestly, the practical experience probably gave me the most preparation to be successful as a shift brewer, but the education gave me probably the more um, tools and, and experience I needed to actually be successful uh, on a managerial level, mm -hmm. um, having the big picture view of things. So it's almost half a business degree. Yeah. Okay. Um, business, but even this the large scale stuff of understanding the the what and why of what we're doing versus just like the rote mechanics of, you know, doing the same thing over and over, like understanding how uh, the science of mesh, you know, uh, works, I think allows you to make some decisions uh, on a larger level that allow you to be successful and um, be consistent. I mean, the holy grail in my mind for brewing is, you know, quality, consistency, and stability. And like, that's all science in my mind. Like, you can make the same beer every time and do it completely different. Um, and... I think there's a lot of brewers that do that and it's fine. Um, there's a lot of brewers that have maybe a lot of technical knowledge but not the, the science background. Um, so I just think it allows you to make choices and understand the why of what's happening. It allows you to do things the same way every time and, and be consistent and then hopefully um, also make a quality stable product as well. What is your actual role as head brewer? So head brewer, when I when you hear it, so someone who has no idea what goes on in a big brewery would imagine, oh, he must be the guy who's telling everyone what to brew or he brews the most like a sitting you're not sitting inside the brew house dumping grains nope yeah. I, I rarely brew we're actually making a new brew today so i sat in for the the mash this morning um made sure everything went fine um but my day-to-day -day stuff's a lot of production management so working with our sales team and our sales analysts to plan out uh production schedule making sure that we have enough beer um brewed making sure we have enough beer in the right package for uh our distribution partners, um, a lot of long-term planning. So I do all the malt and hop contracts. So I uh, spent a good part of my day yesterday talking to one of our hop suppliers, moving a few things around, uh, renegotiating some contracts. Um, uh, he wanted some hops back, I had some extra hops. So it was kind of a win-win for both of us. So I do a lot of that um, on any given day, um, working to maximize efficiency so uh, improve processes whether it's say bringing in like a uh, hot bittering extract to, uh, instead of pellets to try to increase our yields on the brew house working to make sure that IBUs are consistent across breweries by working with or across brands by working with their lab to kind of analyze that data and then make uh, informed decisions on unprocessed changes um, a lot of it's human resources too managing uh, you know two brewery crews um, making sure people are happy, making sure that uh, they're trained properly, they're safe, safety is a big component of it, um, that expectations are clear, we've got standard operating procedures in place, so um, the morning brew and the night brew are doing things the same way, even though they might never see each other or talk about it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot. There's a lot of different little, little components. Like you said, your fingers are in a lot of different pies. 
I work with our front of house team to make sure we have the right beers on tap at the beer hall and that we're doing pairings and things like that too. And there's a lot of just kind of being out involved with the community, whether it's, you know, in Minneapolis or in other markets or in the beer community, going to conferences, beer fests, um, just kind of being out there representing Surly on that scale too. So any given day, it's very, very different. If we have an issue in the brewery though, I'm usually still there trying to help troubleshoot it, whether we have a faulty pump or a, you know, something breaks down. Those guys can't figure it out. I'm going to get that call too. So yeah, all over the place. And with two facilities, it's kind of fun. Like I said, Jared is generally at Brooklyn Center, but we both kind of overlap. So if there's any issues there, I might be over there helping those guys with stuff too. And that's uh, a very small manually run brew house. This brewery here in Minneapolis is a largely automated brew house. So the, even the problems you run into are very different. Like here we have more issues with our like PLC and controllers, relays, electrical stuff where there it's much more like straight up mechanical pump brakes or valves fail, things like that. So, right. I feel um, like, yeah, that's a whole new scale of, yeah. you know, of brew house. So yeah, when you're a home brewery, you go, oh great, yeah, my fil my mesh filter is, you know, my siphon is not working, yeah. you know, like that's simple. You can imagine how that scales up to a 10 barrel or a 30 barrel. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's just a bigger pump over here. That just does that. And I have to stand in this to clean it. And then this one this is a whole new level of, yeah. of challenge. So like, what is what are the real, what are some scale differences? Like some, you said it's an automated brew house. You said PLC. I thought, what is that? Uh, like, yeah. you know, so. Well, ultimately it comes down to like, it's all being owned by computers here, right? Uh, there's, the brewers are, you know, operating the, the software and doing everything, but ultimately every valve that opens is being opened by pneumatic um, airline, which is controlled by a computer. And a sensor is actually saying if it's open or closed. And if any one of those things fails, that valve's not gonna open, or maybe it's gonna be stuck open. Um, and it's not apparent. You can't just look at something and be like, uh, that valve doesn't work or broken center, you notice because there'd be like, you, you can tell that yeah. valve failed. So here it's a lot more. Um, Something's broken. You get an alarm it's, that it's, buzzes. Yeah, it's like, not as apparent. So you yeah. have to dig in deeper and kind of understand the signs, which are much different and much more kind of learned. Like you, it's not something's yeah. going to fail. You're going to see beer flying out the tube. It's something else that's going to be probably much smaller, but potentially more catastrophic because we're dealing yeah. with 600 barrels of beer here versus, you know, 30 or 60 at Brooklyn Center. So, um, kind of the room for failure here is basically zero. Like, yeah. Um, so the, the risks are a lot higher here too. Like remembering mm -hmm. 600 barrels of Furious, like if something would go wrong with that versus 30 barrels of Axeman, like the, those are very different scales too. So I don't know, it's, it's challenging and it's different in its own way, but uh, we're lucky to have really great teams at both breweries. So things go pretty smoothly most of the time. Uh, and, and generally too, I mean, that's the kind of the nature of brewing. Like the most skilled brewers aren't the ones that probably are the ones that probably can figure stuff out and be calm and collected when kind of something does happen. Mm -hmm. Like those are my most valued employees versus like some of the guys that maybe freak out because that's when things start to kind of domino effect because right. everything's going right, everything's going right. It's not a big deal. It's like anything else. You're just going through the motions, doing the job and doing a good job. but. Uh, when things go wrong, that's really when you kind of have to step up and be a problem solver. And I think that's probably one of the biggest skill sets for well, probably any industry, but brewing in general is being able to, to solve problems in a kind of fast, clear way without losing beer, damaging process in the way. When I was in school, I had an internship at a chemical plant and they uh, they produced uh, they produced ethanol, but like not via, via some it was some proprietary process, and uh, they but they made this like you know extremely high grade ethanol. It wasn't it was some of this like ninety nine point nine percent like mm -hmm. something that you can't really get by distilling or whatever. Anyway, it was this process, and you'd go around and you'd be in the control room for their plant, and it'd just be nothing but blinking lights and you'd look and some guy would say like you'd be looking at this light that's blinking and it's labeled like emergency and you ask the technician like what does that mean and he goes that just always blinks <laughs> yeah we have things like that here it's like and other ones are like oh shit oh shit oh shit and then the one is like that's no big deal like, yeah but knowing which one's the oh shit light and which one's the no big deal one is you know half the battle <laughs> yeah they um they would one of the hazards on that job was um we use steam for all kinds of stuff and uh, so steam powered basically mm -hmm. everything. There was a steam plant on like on the premises that generated all that power and then we piped that everywhere. So basically there's this high pressure steam running all around your head in every direction. And if one of the steam alarms went off, that's when you knew something was really gonna go yeah. wrong. Because a steam alarm might indicate where the problem is, but in order to find it, if you have this high pressure jet of steam blasting out of a pipe, 
uh, it's invisible. Yeah. And so they would walk around, and it's like this, uh, it's this jet of, you know, mega hot air that's completely invisible, and it's, blow it's blowing something up, and you can see it on the measure. So what you do is you would walk through the plant carrying a broom in front of you, swiping it, and Very you're looking for the thing. <laughs> yeah, and as wow. soon as the broom exploded, you found, found your pinhole yeah. in a pipe. Scary. Yeah. That's some impressive that's, that's, engineering over that's here. A, OSHA, yeah. is this okay, Paige? But. Do you have to deal with any of that kind of stuff over here? Um, I mean, we, we OSHA doesn't approve of that tactic, by the way. We use a lot of steam, but most of our steam is, is low pressure. I think we're at a bar about 15, 20 PSI max. So, yeah, it's definitely a, a safety concern. Um, and all of our brewers actually have special engineer licenses to run the boiler, um, which is a something mandated. I don't know if it's federal in Minnesota, but... Um, yeah, it's a big component of it. Breweries are not, are not unsafe places, but there's a lot of risks. Um, I mean, we're dealing with, you know, here, 100 barrels of boiling wort at a time. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity and uh, room for error. But luckily, this system uh, has a lot of safety things in place, and um, our SOPs are pretty good. So we haven't had, I don't think we've had an incident in quite some time with even minor injuries, which is good. But even just changes in the atmosphere, like sometimes you can get low pressure system so you open up the, the kettle and usually you're, you know it's sucking in air it might blow steam out at you and like that that could be a huge risk a lot of it's just making sure people are aware of those risks and know what kind of ppe to use and kind of have systems in place where you mentioned briefly a federal or minnesota law and that's a good that'll be a good segue to some of the law stuff that i want to talk about because yeah. like surly obviously is like uh, pretty famous for a certain law uh that yep. got changed so you know Back in the day, like I said, when I was first getting in the industry, we had very few breweries in Minnesota. If we had breweries, most of them were small brew pubs. Um, at the time, I think there's only, you know, maybe just two, three production um, breweries, including Cold Spring. And, you know, Omar had this great idea to start Surly, which he did. But at the time, you could not have a tap room. You couldn't sell pints of beer out of a production facility. You'd have to have a brew pub license, which is a separate license. So years went by, we did just fine as a distribution production brewery. Him and Jim Motter, we call him MVP, um, were in Europe and they were going to these big German beer halls and they'd been out to Stone and some other breweries. And, you know, with our rate of growth, we were basically needing to build another facility or a larger brewery. But Omar really wanted to do something more than just a, you know, a big factory out in the suburbs or wherever. Uh, he wanted to build a destination brewery like the ones he'd visited where you may be making beer in the back, but the best part about it is bringing people in to experience the brewery, uh, drink pints together, uh, just have that sense of community. And at the time, that was not allowed by law. So Cerule's lucky to have a great kind of grassroots following. And that's really a testament to back in the day when Omar and Todd would literally take casts of beer to bars and give away beer for free in the first couple of years of Cerule. That's That was their marketing plan. That's all they did um, was just be around people and drink beer together and like got this huge following of, of, of folks so at some point we kind of just motivated the the group we had a lobbyist uh, worked with some of our, our people in the legislature and basically we're told that you know it's an upward uphill battle you know no way you're going to get this law changed it's been around since prohibition and luckily they were able to convince people that uh it was a good idea and getting a lot of that's a testament to people writing letters and calling lawmakers and law got changed so put in motion this facility right now which is a you know 35 million dollar destination brewery with uh, event center, full beer hall, started with Brewer's Table upstairs, now we have a um, Surly Pizza upstairs, which is a separate concept. Any given Saturday, we might have you know three to four or five thousand people come through here. Along with that came a lot of jobs. When I started, I was employee number 27. We have upwards of 400 employees now that we um, employ in the region. You, you said you started like three years ago, or no, four? Uh, five years now. Five, okay, okay. So when I started, I was there's literally 30 of us. So the, so this brewery's been around for 12 years, and yep. then like, and then in the last five has been this insane yep. growth. And a lot of that growth, again, like most of those employees are, you know, on the hospitality side of things, but this is a huge endeavor. You know, in some ways, we're, we're a production brewery, and we're also a hospitality company at the same time. And really it's really about, and always has been about, not just making great beer, but providing experiences to share the beer in, whether it's Darkness Day, uh, sponsoring concerts. I mentioned earlier, I'm going tonight to see our friends in Yabu in town from Oregon um, playing at Turf Club. And small show, but it's going to be fun. Uh, and then we built this, and again, it's about the experience of bringing people together, whether you're in our community, out anywhere in our market, to to drink beer and just kind of enjoy life. And I think that's a big part of Surly from day one. So to kind of build a place to 
let that happen organically, you know, on our own turf was pretty huge. Uh, be able to change a lot to do that. And I think even internally, we have a large, you know, we're like a big family. You know, somewhat dysfunctional at times, but still a family, and we all get along and love each other. And like, like that's a big part of why we have relatively low turnover. Why we people come here and work, and they uh, even in the beer hall where I think most servers cooks t stick around for a couple months and move on like we've got people that have been here since day one and that are still here and, and happy so i don't know that's a big component of why we did that and why we did this and i think that's kind of an organic way that we've grown from day one like we've never done things the easy way we've always kind of done things you know up and beyond what people expect because our expectations are pretty high and we want to do things the best way possible i've been to tons of breweries and brew pubs you know and like they have good beer but like the food component sucks or they have shitty service and hospitality is not the greatest and that's just not what Surly does everything we're going to do we're going to do the best to our ability might not be the best period but um, we're going to give it uh, 110 percent every time how does it work running the like running a restaurant down there so i was trying i'm trying to get a grasp of like the brew pub a tap room laws yeah talk to a few brewers about it this is like a tap room. It serves just your beer, yep. uh, but it's also a restaurant. So is that allowed? Like, yep. how does that work? Yeah, you can you can have your own restaurant as well. A lot of the local breweries are, you know, they're at a scale where it's easier to partner with like a food truck or mm -hmm. someone else local to bring in food. But the license, you're more than well, you know, capable of, of doing your own food. You just can't bring in wine, spirits, etc. from or beer gotcha. from other people. How's this pizza place up here associated with you all? They just are they leasing a space in here? Are nope, they you guys? That's us. That's, that's our, just that's we're, a, we're we're a pizza place opening a second restaurant inside your tap room. Yeah. So of. you know, the beer hall downstairs is awesome, but on a Saturday or Sunday there might be a two-hour wait, and there's a lot of people that just want to stop in for a beer a quick bite so uh, having the pizza place upstairs is a completely different concept but it's run by our executive chef ben pine uh and the restaurant management team uh as well as the beer hall so it's new haven style pizza pizzas come up five ten minutes allows people to sit down and eat pizza there they can take it to go they can take it down to the, the the beer garden grab beers up there it's kind of a different concept and a different kind of model I think it achieves those same things we talked about earlier of just keeping you know the experience keeping people happy uh, if someone doesn't have time to wait downstairs for brisket barbecue and come up here get a pizza and just kind of gives people more options and brings more people in and allows them to, to kind of experience the let's really model in different ways and we all love pizza too so that's true. Wrong. that's true yeah we've been eating nothing pizza this whole time yeah. <laughs> um it's you're not allowed to have brew pub are you surly is not we'd have right? to have a separate license to do brew pub we're allowed to have one um tap room mm -hmm. period so like we have so your your um brooklyn center is not a tap room there's Correct. no tap room over nope. there mm. nope just uh we do tours out of there um so we can bring people in there and do tours but we can't legally sell pints so if you go on a tour you get a if you bring a food shelf donation you get some samples but that's all oh. you can do legally um that's a good solution to that i guess so yeah so we're not allowed to have any other facilities that serve beer or at least sell beer um whereas places like town hall uh locally or fickers up in duluth have multiple locations but that's under a the brew pub, pub license and they're allowed to have guest beers. Um, you can get a full liquor license under those tap rooms, but they can't sell kegs of beer to, to other uh, locations or sell to wholesalers. So that you can't buy like town hall beer uh, at the liquor store. So that's kind of the trade-off. Mm -hmm. so, um, you guys have a couple other interesting restrictions now at your scale. You're not allowed to self-distribute. You're well beyond, was correct. it a 25K or 20K barrel limit? it's 20, yeah. And uh, yeah, you're well beyond that at 100,000 bar 100, barrels a year. Or Correct. Maybe yep. that was. We'll be just over that this year. And then, um, and then the other fun restriction is that for some reason, Minnesota, you can't sell growlers here. Yeah. So what's up what with that? What the hell? <laughs> yeah. What it the sucks. Hell? It's the same mark. Like if you're under that 20 or 20, I can't remember if it's 20 or 25, you can yeah. sell growlers, you can sell crowlers, uh, and you can self-distribute. Once you get above that, that mark, you can't. And Whose fault is that? You tell me what the reasoning is. Yeah. It's just been one of those laws since Prohibition. They've just been on the books forever. Part of that's to protect, in theory, producers by that three-tier system. But it's more so to keep the larger guys out, I think, than they, uh, they're just way kind of archaic and old, yeah. outdated laws. And it's not something that we're you know actively pursuing to change at this point. Um, honestly, the idea of selling growlers and crawlers downstairs is utterly fucking terrifying because <laughs> we have so many people in here every day. Like... The logistics of that would keep me up at night but um at the same token if we could sell four packs and stuff and have a you know our own store on site yeah we'd it'd be great for us we'd, we'd make a lot of money we could do a lot of um unique interesting beers um and have a lot more control over how they're sold less concerns about you know beers sitting on a shelf for months and do some things that normally i wouldn't do 
from a stability and quality standpoint. But you know, it's a framework within we, within which we have to work. So it's one of the reasons why we do some interesting things like you know make rosé beers because we can't sell beer offsite mm-hmm. and bring in other people's beer. So I think with certain limitations, also just brings challenges, and that's you know we can't do much about it at this point. So um, it's not, you know, it doesn't really do much to complain about it unless you're really willing to go out and try to change a lot. At this point, I don't think it's something that Surly is, is interested in doing. Surly's done it already. Um, <laughs> Somebody else can step up next time. I mean, you go to other states and you see people selling pallets of beer out their door on a Saturday for a special release, and yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, yeah. But again, it's like the, if that changes, we'll definitely embrace that and, and um, do some cool stuff. But at the moment, you know, it is what it is. Do you guys ever brew? Could you brew a cider? Is that allowed? In Seattle, we get guest taps, and we're allowed to have a cider on tap for, you know, gluten-free people or something, but you we, can't do that. We could brew graphs, but it'd have to be 51% malt. Barley. Really? Yeah. I think that's the, the stipulation. So <laughs> if we do any sort of infusions or blends, it has to be more than 50% uh, malted barley. Now just a quick break from the show to talk about our sponsors. After the break, we hear Ben talk about the last time he cried. I'd like to thank Willow's Lodge out in Woodville for making this episode possible. Willow's Lodge is a beautiful luxury lodge with spas, hot tubs, beautiful rooms, and when you walk in, they greet you by name. This autumn, they're doing a bike and brew package that includes a trip to Sumerian, where you get a credit on beer, credit on breakfast the following day, and a discount at the spa. I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you want to see the other breweries in the area. They've got some fantastic complimentary bikes for you to use as well. Probably some of the best I've ever ridden. That's Willow's Lodge out in Woodenville. Washington Beer Talk is also brought to you by craft beer of the month. If you want to get a crate of tasty beer sent to your house or sent to someone else as a gift, then check out cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. That'll send you straight to their website via my affiliate link. Anyway, yeah, so yeah, walk it, well, since we have them here, let's, okay. get, let's get the walkthrough. Um, well, Furious would not necessarily for palate, but that's probably the one we should start with because that's kind of why we're here still after 12 years. This is the beer that kind of started it all, mm-hmm. uh, along with Bender, which is an oatmeal brown ale, but this is the one that really took off. So Furious is still by far uh, the largest um, beer we produce uh, in mm-hmm. terms of, of volume. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a weird beer still, even today, like it, it's odd. It's a Hoppy red ale. Some people try to call it an IPA, which kind of is. It's kind of a um, red ale, um, but doesn't really fit nicely in any sort of category. This will never win an award, uh, GABF, because it doesn't have that style guideline mm. um, background. But that's, I think, why it's been so popular. Nothing like it existed in Minnesota when it first came out. Um, that's kind of why it's really started in the first place. So our owner, Omar Ansari, uh, we still just have one owner, um, was traveling the world playing Ultimate Frisbee. He was out west a lot, out east in Europe and Germany. Um, then he'd come back to Minnesota, and honestly, we didn't have a lot of good craft beer, a lot of uh, stuff that was pushing the envelope. So he was surly that he couldn't get um, something that he'd been drinking uh, elsewhere in, in, in the country and the rest of the world. So him, along with Todd Haug, who was the, the first original head brewer here, came up with Furious, Hoppy Red Ale, and Bender Oatmeal Brown Ale. Um, both of those beers didn't really... Um, have anything like them in the market here and even elsewhere in the country. So, um, and it's, you know, it's had legs ever since. It just keeps growing and growing. As we go into new markets, it's still by far our top selling beer. To, to get um, a sense of scale, um, how much of this do you brew a year? Um, we probably brewed about, I think we did, we did just under 100,000 barrels last year. And this was probably, you know, between Thank 50 you. and 55% of that production. Wow. Okay. Um, so that, that's a lot of beer. Um, like overall, our top four or five core brands, you know, probably account for about 90% of our production. And then, mm. you know, we still got 30 some other beers that we make during the year that count for the rest of it. But those are kind of our heavy hitters. So Furious, uh, Hell, which is a Hellas Lager, Extra Citra, which is a Session Pale Ale uh, featuring Citra Hops, uh, and then Todd the X-Man, which is a, um, kind of a hybrid hazy Midwest IPA. And Todd the Axman is named after the, that original. Yeah, Todd brewer. Haug, um, and he hates the name. It was a collaboration with Amager in Denmark. Um, so mm-hmm. they named it, actually. Uh, we made it once for, I believe it was Surly Fest 
four or five years ago and it's one of those things where you plan to make one batch of beer and all of a sudden it's your top selling beer so yeah uh, it was right there below furious and hell so it became very popular very fast um and in my mind it kind of beat the the crowd to the hazy ipa thing if you've had one of them it's relatively hazy very juicy it's mosaic and citra 50 50 blend um so i think it got a lot of those people excited about beer and then it continues to be successful in playing that game right on uh oh yeah let's let's keep going on the line so we get the furious here all right so the rest of these beers are kind of what i mentioned a very small portion of our overall catalog but um kind of the beers that keep people excited for me the idea with these beers uh is doing um small batches uh, both the rosé and the mosaic kettle sour in our bc small batch series which are brewed, beers uh brewed at our original brewery and then one man mosh bits a beer hall and exclusive um in the true new england style um, and hopefully these are the beers, you know, it's a drop in the bucket overall, but hopefully those ripples kind of gain some speed and get people excited about the brand, uh, get them out to the liquor store to find these small batch beers, and then hopefully um, continue to buy Furious Axeman and some of the other big uh, hitters in our core lineup. So um, the one I'm really excited about currently is Rosé. We've made kind of some wine-influenced beers in the past. For Sones, another one's going to be in the BC Small Batch Series in August. Uh, that's a champagne-inspired beer. That one has an elevated... Uh, ABV, it's about 9%. We made that for New Year's Eve a couple years ago. Um, in Minnesota, by law, we can only serve beer that we produce at our facility. So we can't uh, serve other people's beer, we can't serve wine, we can't serve spirits. Um, so with an event center, with a big beer hall, we wanted to do something special for New Year's. So um, we hung out and drank a lot of champagne and came up with the idea for that beer. And rosé is kind of an um, uh, evolution of that. So I'm a big wine drinker, I love rosé. I buy it by the case. So um, I was thinking about making something this this year that would be a little bit more approachable, lower ABV, a little more fruity, um, like a nice rosé. So um, we use enzymes, kind of like the brewed IPA thing that's happening all around. Like people have been doing that for years. We, we use that to completely dry the beer out. Um, use a lager yeast, uh, finish it with champagne yeast, um, along with just a kind of a kiss of, of red uh, current, black currant, and strawberry. So you get this little essence of fruit, which if you have a nice rosé, you kind of get those notes uh, on the back end. So trying to imitate that a little bit. Also, it's still beer, uh, so it's not going to be wine, but it kind of crosses that gap. And hopefully it gets people that are beer drinkers excited, gets people that are wine drinkers excited. And, you know, as the market gets bigger and bigger, you kind of have to think outside the box. You know, what's what's the next new thing? And what can we do that's still beer, but kind of pushing the envelope and being innovative and, and interesting? And also very approachable uh, and drinkable ultimately. So it's a beer that has had a lot of success in the beer hall. Seems like most people that have one end up having two. You had four this week. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had high expectations for it and you know it's actually exceeded those in, in market. And it kind of crosses all the boxes. It's drinkable, it's approachable, um, relatively cheap to make, so the margins are good. So from a business standpoint, uh, it's a great beer too, which is awesome. So we're all pretty excited about it. We're doing the BC small batch in cans right now. Uh, and then uh, looking forward to next year, probably a larger release in, in a true printed can carton like the rest of our uh, uh, catalog as a seasonal brand. And, you know, who knows? We'll yeah. see what happens with it. So yeah, if it sticks. We've got Brute IPA. Um, again, similar style. People, it seems like people are talking about it as a new thing, but like I know a lot of breweries have been making these kind of beers for a long time. And I just don't think it ever had a name to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but using enzymes, basically dex- dextranases that are breaking down some of those longer chain carbohydrates into fermentable sugars like maltose, glucose, uh, et cetera, that yeast can ferment. So it ferments to a very, very low sugar content, gives it a very dry body flavor, uh, much like a brute champagne or a brute wine. And then low bitterness, but hopped excessively on the on the back end, so you get a lot of nice fruit notes from from the hops. And the idea is that it's a refreshing beer, beautiful beer, very effervescent, and something that again you want to keep drinking as the day goes on. Um, so we're playing around with that as a new style. We're making uh, a version that'll be in our fourth variety pack this year, coming out uh, in the winter. It's an IPA pack, so we'll kind of see how that does, and I think you'll see more of them in the beer hall between now and then too. This one's cool. It features some experimental hops, Southern Hemisphere, J. Lou, Helga, and then uh, Citra hops. So it's kind of fun also using some different hops. And this one's just available in the beer hall now, so we just made a little bit of it. And uh, it's fun for us brewers to experiment with process and also new ingredients. So that was cool. When you make a beer that's just for the beer hall, how much do you make? Um, so these are made at the Brooklyn Center Brewery. Uh, that brew house is a 30-barrel brew house. So at the end of the day, after fermentation, dry hopping, centrifugation, we usually end up with about 25 barrels, give or take, so up to 50 kegs. For people who are listening, like our beer hall is relatively massive. On a Saturday, we could do three, 4,000 covers. So we can push through 50 kegs in 
sometimes as little as two weeks, but even up to a month or two months, the beer holds up well. So it's, we're kind of in a unique position to have a very large brewery, a very small brewery, and then a huge tap room beer hall that can push through quite a bit of beer. So, you know, it's not exactly like the market. We can take some of the consumer feedback and, you know, it's not perfect, but we do get a lot of good feedback from, from beer hall for beers that are kind of R&D batches, potentially that could scale up or um, for future trials as we, as we do a little different things. Rosé we did two or three times just for beer hall. Um, allowed us internally to kind of taste through it and, and make you know small tweaks to the recipe and also to get feedback from consumers, see how it's doing compared to some of our, our heavy hitters. Um, I was surprised because we had a couple of hazy IPAs on that were pretty popular and it outsold them three to one. So hmm. I think that is a testament to the popularity of the style. And yeah, in, in terms of like, you know, slashing through that hazy <laughs> yeah. IPA trend. Which, yeah, which yeah, is interesting. We did a collaboration earlier this year with Fair State Cooperative. It's a brewery in town, and we mm-hmm. did it. It's called Clarity of Purpose, and we, we canned it at Fair State, and it was exactly that. We made a New England-style IPA and then um, made it clear, basically, and it tasted great. It was awesome. <laughs> um, both Nico and I are kind of technical trained brewers. We like to make things that look pretty, but I, I understand they appeal to these, and they taste great. Um, but in my mind, if I had these two beers in front of me, one clear, one hazy, I'd probably choose the clear one. But um, obviously, there's a demand and market for it, and... We can't just do everything we want all the time. <laughs> um, but I, I enjoy these beers. It's been fun to make, and it's a challenge, too, as a brewer to do something outside of your wheelhouse and uh, do it in a way that's going to be consistent, stable, um, and hold up to their other beers. So honestly, like looking back at it, it's been a lot of fun, and we've made some really cool beers, and we have some ideas for the future. And um, just kind of, I went back and did a lot of research, uh, read some papers on, on like wit beers and beers that have been traditionally hazy over, you know, basically forever. There's a lot more research on those style of beers than there are for New England style IPAs, just because they're so new and most of the big universities and uh, academics aren't really looking at, at small, tiny craft breweries, but there's actually a lot of research on, on whip beers, hefes, stuff like that that are supposed to be uh, hazy, that have a really nice suspended haze. Um, and that was kind of eye-opening to go back and look at some of those techniques and incorporate them in making beers like this because ultimately you want something that's not going to settle out. You want a nice permanently suspended haze, but you don't want it to be chunky. So there's a lot of cool stuff you can do from a innovation standpoint and technological things that we've tried. And it's, it's so far, I think it's been working out well. Are there tricks to brewing like a hazy IP on a massive scale? Um, I mean, I guess massive scale. You, you yeah. guys are still using your thirty-barrel system, so for the haze, unless this is this isn't one of the ones that gets no. This is this here, from right? Broken Center too, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if tricks are the right word, but there's definitely um, processing concept stuff that you can do. Yeah, secrets um, maybe. Our brewery here is you know it's German design. It's a Rolex brewery. It's a hundred-barrel brew house. We have six hundred-barrel fermenters. So, um, I mean, it's meant to make very traditional technical beers like. Uh, hell's perfect that brews like magic on this it's a it's an old school hellas lager yeah there's a lot of stuff we can do but a lot of it comes down to you know ingredient choice um mashing techniques this day and age there's a lot of different process aids you can use you know they're natural they're not gmo or anything but you can you can use those to help whether it's uh in mash with a uh, breakdown of different uh, proteins beta gluconases sugars whatever all the way through to finished product with either making the beer extra clear or opposite. There's process aids that help keep the beer hazy too. So traditionally brewers have been using process aids to help clarify beer. It's fun to see other products come out there uh, attempting to do the opposite. But yeah, so I guess the short answer, yes. There's some some secrets and process stuff. I don't know how really secret they are, but it's, it's just a matter of doing the, the research and, and trying different stuff too. I mean, R&D is a big part of it. Like rarely we you know, hit it out of the park the first try, but you get a couple on your, in your belt and you learn a lot as you do that. I mean, craft brewing, as you're probably well aware, is such a good networking uh, or just network of brewers. Everyone's on the brewing production side is pretty open to just talking about beer, talking about process, things they've tried that have worked, they've tried that hasn't worked, new products. Um, so that's always great. Like I've had a lot of conversations with my friend Keegan Yee at Modest in town. They have a mash filter. He's doing a lot of the, I think, better versions of kind of the New England style and hazy IPAs in town. So if you haven't had a chance to go to Modest, I highly recommend that. The guys over at Barrel Theory in St. Paul, uh, Timmy Johnson and Brett actually came from here. They're doing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, they do a lot of great fruit beers, kind of reminiscent of like the Jay Wakefields in Miami and some of those breweries. But That's what we have next, right? The Mosaic Kettle Sour, I believe. Right. Um, so this is uh, just out in Kansas and BC Small Batch as well. I'm a big fan of hoppy sour beer. You don't see a lot of them. Mm-mm. 
the first time we made this beer was 100% Britannomyces fermented beer, um, dry hopped and mosaic. Unfortunately, we're, we're not pasteurizing, so I'm not comfortable putting Brett through our canning lines. So uh, when we kind of started to think about putting this in cans, we did some trials with the uh, Saccharomyces trois, which originally was identified as a Brett strain, but it's since, you know, if you look at the genetics, it's a Saccharomyces strain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives you not quite as funky as Brett, but it gives you kind of the pineapple tropical notes you get Brett not as much as the barnyard funk, but I thought it translated really well. So we did a couple iterations of that for the beer hall and worked on it. And in my mind, Mosaic's kind of already got that earthy funkiness to it at the top of like the mango tropical fruit notes, like a papaya, uh, a little bit of pineapple. So those two things worked really well. So yeah, it was just fun to make. Again, like it's, we've, we've done a few bread IPAs over the years, some like dry hop kettle sour beers. And like, I always prefer those to the fruited ones. Like I love fruit uh, in kettle sours too, but I, I'm just I'm just a hop guy, so I kind of gravitate to that side of things. Right. I don't know. I, I like it. It's got like a pretty subdued sourness to it. Like yeah. A, almost like a lemon zest type of flavor. Yeah. Not I didn't, like a, I didn't want to be too like enamel stripping sour. So, and that's the nice thing about the kettle sour process because you can kind of stop it whenever you want. You just boil it, right? So we had a very firm idea of where we wanted that pH to be and um, made sure that, you know, we, we cut the process boiled it, then fermented it from there, which I think it was around four, four, six, four, seven. So not super tart and dropped probably through fermentation to still high or low fours, I should say, whereas most kettle sours get down to, you know, three, five, three, two, if you let them go all the way out um, during the, the, the bacterial stand. But um, I think it works really well. So again, this is BC small batch. So I think literally only canned about 900 cases of it. It's out in market now, um, but it will be on the beer hall. And we'll probably do some more trials and maybe change the hops up a little bit, try some different things out, and maybe come back at, at some point in larger format. Uh, would you say that like the legal situation in this state is beneficial to what you're trying to do? What I've noticed is talking to a lot of breweries, and, and this could be as a result of a lot of factors, but talking to most of these breweries and visiting a bunch is there's a lot of production breweries, a lot of places that have enough beer to distribute and are at all the local stores and maybe citywide. Um, whereas in Seattle, we sort of have like our, if you go to a, a grocery store, I mean, of course we can buy beer in a grocery store. So, you know, you go to our grocery stores, you can see a lot of the shoes and a lot of Nkasi and then, you know, heaven knows how many Budweiser brands are there and you don't get the kind of um, local breweries that you get here. So even in Seattle, we've got five breweries that yeah. you know distribute uh, to the whole city. And uh, whereas here, you go to the you go to the store. I've talked to five, you know, just yeah. in the course of the weekend, gone and interviewed them. And it's like, so there's more. There's a lot, and that is either the product of the laws, legal situation in a city, in a, uh, in a state, or it's um, maybe it's a product of the fact that your beer industry is just a, like. Surly law enabled, recently enabled. Uh, it definitely did. I mean, like I said, before the Surly law passed, there wasn't a lot of, you know, production breweries, period. And we've definitely seen, I mean, little hundred some different breweries pop up in the last five, six years. Um, most of those are not anywhere near the level that Surly, um, uh, Fulton, any of the other big, relatively mid sized breweries. A lot of them are more of a small, Neighborhood breweries, they have some production. Maybe they're using a mobile canning line. Maybe they have a small canning line, bottling line. But overall, most of those breweries are probably, you know, let's say 90% are other under 10,000, if not under 5,000 barrels annual production. Um, but I think it's a testament to Twin Cities culture in general, like the nightlife scene. Like there's a lot of people that want to go out and drink craft beer and are open to it. Uh, and you're seeing a lot of more people like, we like to say drink by zip code. So the dangerous man's a perfect model for that. They're kind of the first people to do that where they distribute, you can get beer on tap maybe two places in town. And up until a year ago, that was zero. Yeah. (laughs) But if you go in there, it's packed every night of the week um, because the the neighborhood comes out. Um, People come to town just to go to dangerous man because it's a destination. It's like the same idea that we have, but on a very small scale. And there are a lot of other places that do that too, that maybe have some distribution, but their primary business model is still going to be bringing people into the their tap room. Obviously, that's where the, the best profit margin is going to be when you're selling pint directly over the bar. And it also fosters that sense of community and neighborhood too, which I think has grown a lot. I mean, we saw it with like the slow food movement too in Minneapolis with places, all the smaller restaurants that have opened in the past you know, 10, 15 years. Um, corner table, sample room, all these small neighborhood spots that are um, still thriving, but 
they're relatively expensive and you walk in there's maybe 20 tables but you sit down and eat and i think a lot of the brewers are, uh in town kind of foster that same sense of um, i don't know what the exact word would be for that but it's been fun to see that but the way the market is we're not necessarily saturated but i don't think the kind of opportunities that Surly had early on places like fulton indeed there's just not as many opportunities anymore. Like the shelves are stocked with plenty of plenty of different brands and choices. There's only so many tap handles to get. So even we're, you know, certainly we're seeing our growth slow and we're still growing, um, but we're not seeing 20, 30% growth every year either the way we saw in the first you know, mm-hmm. six or seven years. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the market, both locally and nationally as more and more breweries open. But so far, like I said, they're all busy. They're all um, relatively packed. So the market's good. I just don't know how much bigger people will be able to get necessarily included i want to come back to the um to sort of the growth of the brewery and how your plan how that is going to look forward in a bit what that's going to look like uh but i want to go back real quick to the brewers guild which you just mentioned so the minnesota brewers guild um has been mentioned now by half at least half the breweries that i've spoken with and that's and i've spoken with more breweries in seattle but they don't mention our guild and i've actually interviewed the washington brewers guild and you know learned about what they're what kind of stuff they're doing but they don't have the kind of the Washington Brewers Guild doesn't have the doesn't have the mind share in the brewers that the Minnesota Brewers Guild seems to have. So, well, what are they doing over here? Obviously, they lobby um, and they help you out, but like they're here, they're in your heads. You keep talking about them. Yeah, I mean, I'm a fairly critical person overall, just in general. So I'm relatively critical of our Brewers Guild. Omar used to be the president of the guild. Um, it's hard when you have breweries of so many different sizes because everyone's agenda is a little bit different, mm-hmm. and they've failed. We've failed really as a community to kind of align those interests uh, into a clear, concise agenda. So it's something that we're constantly working on to kind of figure that out. What is our priorities? You know, if we're going to go to our legislator and lobby things, what are we lobbying for? And how do we do that with a clear platform where Surly's voice is as important as Dangerous Man's voice and we're all on the same page? And I think that's been the biggest challenge of the past, really since the Surly bill changed. We haven't seen a lot of major changes other than Sunday sales in our industry doesn't mean our, indus- our guild's not doing a lot of work. They are. But I think we can do a better job of working together to kind of focus and dial in on, on a clear kind of agenda. So it's, it's, a, it's been challenging. But I think for any guild and in this, this market, especially with as many changes as we're seeing, new brewers, old brewers, breweries being bought out, shut down, you know, the Budweiser's, ABI's, the Heineken's coming in and buying shares. Like, it's just such a weird, volatile market right now. So anything that makes it more important, I think, for the brewers through the guild to kind of band together and come up with a clear platform. And we've seen that done better on a national stage, but I think we've got some work to do in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to the ABM Vef stuff you just yeah. mentioned as well. I like to talk about that a lot. What are, If I sat here racking my brain about it, I could think of some examples of where small brewers... Uh, motivations wouldn't align with a brewery of surly size what are maybe some things you can think of like that aren't where your priorities don't align i mean on sales it's probably a huge component because a lot of the small breweries already have that mm-hmm. if you're under twenty thousand barrels like you can sell crowers you can sell growlers um so they might not that might not be at the top of their priority list whereas for surly like we would love to be able to you know have coolers down in our, our mm-hmm. Um, company store and be able to sell beer to go too. So, so how much um, money? How much of the small brewers' money will your guild be comfortable spending? Yeah, trying exactly. to change the law that doesn't help them. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's just a you know just priorities like the things that are going to help us may or may not also help the smaller brewers. But how we can work together to kind of find common ground is important. But um, there's a lot of taxation stuff where excise taxes you know once we get to a certain point uh, go up considerably. Um, we have to deal with that shell summit, but a lot of the other guys aren't dealing with that either. So I think just taxation and um, regulation is a big aspect of that as you get bigger. It's, yeah, you wouldn't expect that as you got bigger and bigger, margins would get smaller and smaller. Yep. You'd think you'd get some more scale bonuses, but you kind of don't. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it kind of goes in the opposite direction, which is weird because yep. you've got companies like Budweiser that own the whole game. <laughs> True. Uh, do you pay more to be in the guild than small breweries do as Surly? You pay like the flat, yep. I don't know, so Washington, it's $150 a year yeah, for so breweries. That's actually something that's come up before. Like the, It's a relatively low figure, too, to be a part of the guild. So yeah. I, you never know. Maybe if, if we all had to pay a little more, maybe people would be more invested. I don't know. I'm not sure. But, yeah. Um, you certainly have more money to spend on it. Maybe yeah. you wouldn't bother thinking so hard about how to spend yeah. whatever $10,000 worth of lobbying sure. money you have. So yeah. it, it's hard because like, we have different resources and different goals and objectives, but we also care a lot about the smaller, you know, community partners as well. Like 
So I think trying to find that common ground again is, is the most important and compromising on stuff too. Mm -hmm. I can bring together my next two questions. So we're going to talk about your growth, what the plant, what that kind of looks like going forward, but also want to talk about Budweiser a little bit. I okay. think your brewery is well in that range, the threat range for Budweiser, where most of the breweries I talk to are so small, they're not even a blip on a radar. Yeah, I mean, I know Omar's probably talked to all sorts of people. He's also been fairly um, adamant about remaining sole owner, passing it on to his kids. He's a second generation business owner in America. His, his parents own the Embraces factory that uh, Brooklyn Center Brewery is located in now. Uh, so he takes a lot of pride in that. We felt lucky to be working for him and confident that he's not just looking for a big paycheck. So we'll see what happens. The market, though, changes every day. We also are lucky in Minnesota that uh, Budweiser can't technically own uh, Taproom here. So um, they won't really benefit much from buying like a big facility like ours. Local scale, obviously, it can have distribution and production in the brand. But I think that's why we haven't seen a lot of that. In Minnesota itself, well, we've seen it everywhere else, kind of in the country. But mm -hmm. do you still drink Goose Island, Elysian, any of those beers? Did you ever? Not really. I mean, I don't. You really... had your plenty of your own beer to drink. Yeah, I drink a lot of Surly. Uh, I drink a lot of wine, to be honest. But I mostly drink local, fresh. Uh, yeah, that's kind of the key. And I don't really like even darkness for me is is best fresh. Like I don't really like drinking two year old beer. Period. Um, I'd prefer to drink stuff that's brewed. And as close to package as possible, uh, mm -hmm. date-wise. Um, you mentioned now darkness a couple of times. I saw that that's, you know, you've got on your website 10 years of darkness. Yes. Uh, which I guess, so that's your Imperial Stout released annually. Yeah, darkness is a Russian Imperial Stout released uh, 750 milliliter bottles, generally around Halloween of every year. And we, it's basically like Christmas. We throw the best fucking party in the world called Darkness Day. Um, we bring in friends metal bands from around the the world to play and it's been at brooklyn center since day one and it started very organically on release day people just showed up hours and hours before release date and brought beers and shared them and hung out it's not something we can really sustain anymore so we're actually moving it to wisconsin uh to somerset uh where they have a huge amphitheater full campground with facilities so we're gonna people come in friday night do a big bottle share people can bring in beer um we'll have some special um Surprises Friday night, and then Saturday will be the pickup bottles, have bands play, and they're also bringing friends in from around the country to bring us some beer. So we'll have kind of a little party where you can kind of purchase small samples of beer, kind of like Dark Lord Day of, I think we're looking at upwards of 100 different breweries. So it's going to be Darkness Day on steroids, uh, and I'm super excited. I know there's some folks that are kind of like, eh, it's not going to be the same. It's like, hell no, it's going to be 100 times better. So uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We've got a few bands already confirmed and some other stuff that's going to be exciting. I can't talk about it quite yet. But And then we're also selling some variants. So we have Darkness aged in a local distillery's Fernet Barrels, Tattersall uh, Distillery. They're a small craft distillery that wins pretty much gold medals in everything they've done. Uh, they're easily one of the best known, best regarded distilleries in, in the nation. And they're our friends and neighbors. We're doing a uh, bourbon barrel aged Darkness with uh cherry and then we're doing a rum barrel aged one with toasted coconut so those will be variants you can only get at darkness day uh, we are selling tickets uh, so you can secure your bottles ahead of time so you don't have to wait in line but if people go on surlybrewing.com they can they can see all that and we'll slowly be announcing our guest brewers that'll be selling beer there as well as the bands as as we get closer but i'm excited like literally it's like christmas for me i look forward to it every year uh, this year it's earlier it's a september 28th and 29th <laughs> so for camping it's a little bit more hospitable since we live in the great north um, this was recorded back in july so sorry you already missed the dark festival i've oh. been to some bottle release parties and uh they're all right this sounds so cool yeah, yeah. Th this sounds like pretty insane so you hear that fremont step up the game <laughs> Sounds like a reason to open another Alaska Airlines card. Yeah. <laughs> but Darkest Day is always great. We have a just phenomenal events team, and we're sitting in our events center right now. Um, but those the same people put on Festival Field shows up back. We'll have, we had 6,000 people here to see Spoon and Grizzly Bear last week. Um, so that they know how to, how to throw a hell of a party. Um, so it's, it's well run. There's not people passed out in their own vomit anywhere. It's, it's a pretty, pretty fun event. People are relatively well-behaved, and uh, we always have... 
amazing bands, um, a lot of great people. So yeah, we we have a we have a great beer culture here. Um, you know, anywhere from people just getting into beer and 21, 22 years old to, you know, 67 year old people that have been part of the community since before it was cool. So if you go down to the beer hall, you see that we'll have nursing mothers hanging out drinking beer, university kids, grandmothers, everyone's just hanging out together. And that's kind of the, the same spirit of community and stuff we'll bring to, to Darkness Day and any other events we do. A lot of cycling do. clubs. Yeah. Oh yeah. A lot of bikers. Um, you meant, were any event center wins? I think you mentioned earlier, Tiffany, that there were, there have been weddings held at this brewery. Yeah. Our yeah. other head brewer, Jared Johnson, got married up here. What? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's fun. I, uh, yeah. Babe, let's get married at a brewery. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm this is small enough that I don't have to invite anyone. Yeah. <laughs> what is your favorite beer that they brew here? That's that, that you brew? Um, that's we make so many. Um, my go to is probably Hell, Hell Slogger. Yeah. Your big production, one of your main guys, that's your yep. favorite one. It's kind of our number two, probably number three extra citrus coming up fast behind it. But yeah, it's just a great beer, drinkable, um, sessionable. And I like to sit down and hang out with people and have three or four beers. So you can't do that with some of our bigger guys, mm-hmm. uh, at least responsibly. Um, yeah, for seasonal beers, um, honestly, probably rosé right now. Yeah. Um, is it just me or... Like the seven seven and a half percent range beers more popular out here than they are in Seattle. Am I crazy? I feel like they're not crazy. Really? Okay. All right. Whatever. Maybe it's just what I look at. Um, what's your favorite beer of all times? Perhaps the beer that turned you into the man you are today. Um, I'll probably go. Well, back in the day, the beer that really got me into craft beer is probably Masala Mama at Town Hall, which is a brew pub in town. That was probably one of the first real IPAs I ever had. Um, my dad always used to have this Italian beer. I'm trying to think what it was. I think it was Moretti. So that's the beer I used to sneak out when I was 16. Mm. And I was super bitter and like, I just drank it because it had alcohol in it. But I learned to love that beer a lot. Um, a lot better than Green Bell. A lot better than Green Bell. I drank a lot of that in college too. Um, big macro beer I drink a lot now. It's probably Coors Banquet if I drink a macro beer. Uh, just solid. Um, Kind of the beers that excite me right now in the craft world are probably more um, kind of the IPA hops side, but locally, um, guys at Modest, uh, try Dreamyard if you haven't had that one yet. That's uh, been pretty exciting. And then all the stuff kind of outside the box, like the rosés of the world, like weird uh, hybrid sour beers, fruit beers, barrel-aged stuff that just are kind of like new and weird and, and odd, but um, I don't drink a lot of those, usually like smaller pours because I can't. Can't drink a lot of too many crazy things, but yeah. One of my, I guess my approach to brewing in general is kind of that Venn diagram of unique but drinkable, and I want to meet somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that's what I look for when I drink beer too. How did Coors Banquet win that competition for your favorite macro? Well, because it's fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> they do a good job, and you know, your Coors Light version, whatever. Only because that's what my college days drank. My dad yeah. still prefers Coors Banquet. You know, Coors, <laughs> Coors in today's world is very different than what it used to be, but they're. Um, pretty great history too. I mean, they used to do the whole vertical thing where they own the barley field, they own the railroad that brought the barley to the malt plant, they own the malt plant, they own the canning plant, they own everything and like had this huge um, empire in Colorado um, and they refused to ship beer anywhere until they had refrigeration. So I'm just fascinated by their history too. Obviously mm-hmm. today it's completely different, but, um, and just make good beer. So uh, I find it fascinating. <laughs> Tiffany doesn't like it when I talk about Chris too much, but. Um, I find the history and the beer both uh, equally fascinating, but um, if I'm going to sit down and drink a bunch of beer, it's probably that. But honestly, I gravitate when I'm not at work uh, or not with peers to drink more wine uh, spirits. Like at home, if I'm drinking anything, it's probably wine. What's your favorite kind of wine then? I drink a lot of rosé in the summertime. Otherwise, I'm a red guy. I like Zins, Cabs, more like hearty, spice-forward wine, dry. I go cab sav and I call it cab sav to piss off everyone who's too, <laughs> who's too into wine. Yeah. <laughs> As a beer guy, I drink cab sav. Cab sav. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that pisses off my opera singing friends. Nice. Um, we have a lot. Somehow we have a lot of. Yeah. <laughs> um, last question: When was the last time you cried? Cried? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I don't honestly remember. He's that manly. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
It's probably watching a shitty movie or something, but. Fire <laughs> <laughs> me. I didn't cry in that. It's more like I've seen it too many times. Maybe the first time. <laughs> All right. Well, right on, dude. Thank you so much for yeah. taking the time to chat with us. No problem. Let's go grab a beer. Sweet. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Ben. I can't wait to be back in Minneapolis and have some more surly brews. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, then you can find other episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't forget to like, leave a review, and share with your friends. 